Well, we do want to wish all of our mothers today a, a happy Mother's Day. And as we open up God's Word, uh, after we finish that wonderful set of worship, we want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been in a series of messages on Captured by Hope. And in the book of 1 Peter, we find that Peter is writing Christians who feel exiled and probably are exiled in a sense of their homes as they're nomads traveling around. And as he's writing them, he's assuming trials are going to come up in their life. In fact, they're under heavy persecution at this time. And so he's assuming that. And he also assumes that in our lives as well. We're not exempt from trials because we live in this world, in a sinful world, in a world of, uh, of temporary, you might say, a temporal world, we are subject to all the trials that everybody else is subject to. The question is, how are we going to handle those kinds of trials in our life? And his book is to prepare us for that. Now, last week, <clears throat> tying these messages together a little bit, uh, I finished up, or close to the end of the sermon, I talked about a little uh, illustration. And I said, suppose someone came to you or called you up and said, I want to meet with you this afternoon or uh, sometime this week, and I want to just take your whole afternoon. And you say, well, what's the meeting about? Well, we just want to meet. Well, what's the meeting about? Well, there's really no agenda. There's no real purpose to it. I just want to, I don't know, hang out. We'll think of something to talk about. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't know this person all that well. I think it's going to be a waste of my time to meet with them. And I just introduced the question. If it's a waste of time, if you have a meeting that has no purpose and that's a waste of time, then would it be at least uh, entertaining a thought that maybe if we don't have a purpose in life, that we're also maybe wasting our life? And I don't want you to waste your life. God doesn't want you to waste your life. And so we have a purpose. And that purpose has to do with holiness. That purpose has to do with the wholeness in our life. And we said holiness means to be cut out, like cutting out a newspaper article and you use it, maybe put it in a file somewhere where you can use it for the future, for a future article, a future book, a future sermon, a future lesson that you're teaching. But you have to cut it out of the newspaper in order to use it. And so holiness means to be set aside. It means to be cut out for the use of God, for our conduct, our character as we advertise Jesus to the rest of the world that he makes a difference in our life, but also in deed as well. And it says exactly that word, in deeds, in the works that we do. But why? You say, well, we'll become more like Jesus, right? Yes, but why? And I know I sound like a preschooler right now, right? And, and the preschooler is always asking, but why, Daddy? But why, Daddy? But why, Mommy? And it's a good question. Because when we know the why, we can follow through the what and the how. So why is it? What is the ultimate purpose of our life? Now, I know that you have a purpose in your life. I have a purpose in my life. My, my purpose is, part of my purpose is to preach the Bible, for example. You have a purpose specifically in your life. But we also have a general purpose. What is that general purpose? Well, it will tell us right here in this passage, and I want to read verse 22. It says, Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 
He says what? He says for this. Notice it says for a sincere heart. Why do you go through all this? Why the holiness in life? Why the wholeness, the need for a wholeness in life? It's love. Now, what does that mean? We can think about love as being something that's about tolerance. Hey, you live your life the way you want to live it. I'll live the way I want to live it. And I'm not going to confront you. You don't confront me. Uh, you know, just go along to get along. And or, uh, you know, no matter how, what you do and how you live, whatever, I'm just going to applaud it. Whatever. I'm never going to confront you. Sometimes we just feel like that's what love really is all about. So what is it about? Well, the Christian life is about love. And I want us to take this passage, this brief passage, in three points, three areas. First of all, I want us to see the goal, again, the goal of the Christian life. Then I want us not only to define that, but to see how, what the ground is for, how we can get there. What is the basis to it all? What, what is our capability? Our capability of the whole thing. And then thirdly, how do we actually get there as we look at the growth of it? First of all, again, as Peter's writing this book, keep in mind, he's writing to Christians, helping them prepare for trials and persecutions in life. Why is he talking here about relationships? Because we know that no one can break your heart like somebody that you love. No one. No one can, can pull your strings like someone that you love. In fact, life is filled with relationships. Many of our prayers have to go uh, with someone else, either our relationship with them or them, and they're going through the trials that they're going through. Many of our prayers, many of our worries, many of our burdens are about other people. And so we look at this and we see in verse 22, it says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. Now, what is he talking about here? He's just reviewing a little bit. He's saying, look, having purified your souls, how'd you do that? Well, you got saved. First five verses of this book talk about how we've been chosen in him. We're secured in him. The Holy Spirit's come into our heart to make a difference in our life right now. And he says, by obedience to the truth, And this is really oftentimes a synonym for salvation in the Bible. You'll find this all throughout the scripture. Obedience to the truth, obedience to the truth. That means, hey, you've been saved. So he says here, since you have been saved, he says, for what? For love. Now notice what he, this is is a good uh, insight, I think, for us here in the scripture. It says, first of all, for a sincere brotherly love. Then it says, It goes on to say, now, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, now get get what he's saying here. He says, first of all, you've been saved for a brotherly love. Now, I want you to love one another. Now, that doesn't make sense on on the surface because what he's saying is here, you've been saved to a brotherly love, a love for one another. Now, love one another. Well, if we've already been saved to that, we've already got the capability of that, why now the command? Because there's two different Greek words for love in this scripture. The first one is the word phileo, or where we get our word Philadelphia from. It means brotherly love. The second one, when he says, uh, uh, obedience to love one another earnestly, that is the word agape. Now, oftentimes preachers will say, well, that's an unconditional love. 
But let's face it, nobody can really do that outside of Christ. But it does mean a God-like love. It's a superior love. It means that you can endure so many more things that you can simply with a fellowship type of love. So he says the end is this. First of all, there's God-like love. And all through this book, as well as all through the Bible, it teaches us to love God. Then now it says we got to love the brethren as well. In fact, that really wraps up the entire Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are about loving God. The last six commandments are about loving our brothers or other people as we do ourselves. And so he says here, first of all, he says, I want you, he says, to have a sincere brotherly love. One of the hallmarks of the Christian life, in fact, maybe the hallmark of the Christian life is loving other people. If you were to ask, describe in one word Jesus Christ to the people outside the church, we we're asking that question, they would say love. Jesus loves me. And sometimes they, they feel like, well, that, that is an excuse for anything they do, but that is the message. And so if we don't express love, then we're not the testimony as far as they're concerned that we ought to be. But he, in fact, there's a doctrinal, there's, there's three tests really in the book of 1 John about our salvation and how we can know that we are saved. One is a doctrinal test. We looked at that last week. The second one we looked at also was a moral test. How do you live your life? But the third test is a love test. He says in 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It is it's the hallmark of the Christian life. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also love one another. By this all, listen to this, by, all, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. How are you gonna know? How are you going to know by looking at somebody's life if they're, they're, they're disciples? Well, it all, you know, it's according to what they leave off in life, what they hate in life, what they, what, they, what they shun in life. Oh, no, it's about what they do in life, about their ministry in life. It says they will know you are my disciples if you, love, you have love for one another. And what does all this mean? Well, it says, first of all, it's sincere love. This word actually means in the original language, without wax. Now in the day, back in this day, in the New Testament times, what they would do is uh, if they break a vase, for example, a vase, depending on where you're from, if they break a vase, they'd pick it up and they, they'd wa put wax over it. But they'd do it in such a way that after they painted it, you could not tell. It looked just like the original. There was nothing different about it, but it was not genuine. It, it was not the real deal. It had wax in it, brought down the value of the vase considerably. He, this word means sincere without wax, without anything fake. It means a sincerity of heart, a sincerity of love that is truthful. And it means to put others first in our life. Now, when we're talking about this kind of sincere love, how can we say, well, you know, it's just live and let live. I'm not going to worry about it. If they want to live the way they want to live, I'm, I'm not going to be concerned. That's not really love. You wouldn't do that to your child. I hope you wouldn't. I hope when your child's growing up, oh, if you want to run out, 
in the middle of the road, you go right ahead. I, I don't want to confront you with that. Or if you're doing drugs, I don't want to confront you with that. No, you would confront them. You would try to do everything you can, you could in your life in order to correct that. Why? Because you love them. There is confrontation. In fact, when we say, I just don't want to confront anyone, what we're really saying is, it's not that I love them, it's just that I love me. I don't want to put up with a hassle. I don't know what they're going to say. They're going to get mad at me. I'm going to lose a friend. No, love requires that we put others ahead of ourselves. Now, once this brotherly love happens, he says, I want you to go deeper. I want you to go deeper in this, and I want you now to love them the way God loves you. He says, an agape way, in verse 22, loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. Again, without wax, a sincere, a sincere heart. But this word earnestly really is a running word. It's an endurance word as though you're running a race and maybe a marathon and you're stretching your muscles and stretching yourself as far as you can possibly go. It's, it's a word strenuous. It has the idea of strenuous exercise. And he says, I want you to do this. Now, one thing about exercise, one thing about it, the more you do, the more you can do. Now, at first, when you go out and say, you go to the gym, you, you work out, and you think, oh, I can do this, and I, you, you see somebody else doing something, oh, I'm just as strong as they are, and they've been working out for a year, and this is your first time, you're going to come away with some serious sore muscles, and uh, you're going to feel weaker, but eventually, it makes you stronger. So when you express love, it may hurt at first. When you express love, it may leave you a little empty at first, but it makes you stronger. And eventually, if you have a relationship with someone, it's going to make that relationship stronger. On the other hand, if you don't exercise at all, it's going to make you weaker, right? I mean, I, I can remember a time when I was in school and I had, uh, because of a, a leg injury, I was laid up in bed for um, about three weeks. And before that, um, uh, you know, really actually about six weeks altogether, counting the cast time. And so by the time I really got up more than just a couple of minutes, I was really weak. And back then I would, uh, I was working out in this little gym we had at the, at the college. And I thought, well, um, I'm not ready to go back there, but I'm doing my laundry. There's a, there's a bench press back there and there's some weights back there. I'll just do something just to sort of get warmed up because I don't have anything to do, but wait on my clothes. So I go in and I put the barbells on. I usually use the machines down there, but I put the barbells on and I'm not gonna tell you how little weight I was doing. It's embarrassing. I've never told anybody and I won't tell you. But anyway, I started weightlifting and I got up to about, you know, you, you know I, this, this is light. I could do a, a 25 or 30 easy. I got not even to 10 and it rested on my chest and rolled up to my neck. And I was really afraid I had to do a lot of praying to get that thing down to my chest so I could do kind of a sit-up and get it off uh, my chest. And it was a light amount of weight. What happened? Atrophy almost set into my muscles. I, they were weak. The less you do, the less you love, the less you're capable of loving. The more you love, the more you express that love, the more earnestly you stretch it out in endurance. Stretch it out even under persecution. Stretch it out even when you're discouraged. Stretch it out when your, your faith, your, your, you feel like your prayers are not doing anything but reaching the ceiling and bouncing off. Notice it says here that in this love, and you express it, 
As you grow it, you've got to cut off some dead wood. I just want to skip to verse 2 or chapter 2 and verse 1. We may come back to it at another point here in just a moment, maybe. So put away, it says, all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. He's giving us something that we can do, not an exhaustive list, but he says, if you're going to express this brotherly love, growing into an agape love, then what you have to do is cut off some dead wood. You cannot express yourself in this way. You're going to have to ask the Holy Spirit to take these things out of your heart. He says, what are they? It's like pruning a tree. He says, what are they? Malice. That's a desire to harm others. Hiding your real agenda. Deceit. Well, that's being two-faced, literally. It's lying to someone. Anytime you lie to someone, you're taking advantage of them. You're, they're, they're making decisions based on what they trust in you, based on a truth that's not really a truth. So you're temporarily taking advantage of them, and there's no way you can say that you love someone when you're lying to them. Then hypocrisy, just being an actor, just going through the, again, the whole idea of malice, deceit, hypocrisy is deception, envy. That's hidden resentment for another's advantage. And when that happens, sooner or later, slander or gossip's gonna happen. You're gonna talk about someone, you're gonna blame somebody for all, you're gonna blame uh, maybe your brother, blame your sister, blame your friend, blame, blame your, your pastor, your father, your mother, for all the ills in your life, and you're gonna slander them. Why? You don't wanna take responsibility for that because you're not loving others, you're putting yourself first. Well, Peter is saying to us here, he says that, that you are saved and God is calling you to a holy life with the end game, beginning with the end in mind. You know, that's what the business world says. You, be, you begin with the end in mind and then you work your way back. You see what your goal is. You see what your purpose is. And from looking at that, you can see the what, what you need to do, and then how to do it. But you have to have the target. And he says the target here, the end game is to love God and love others. He says in, uh, in John 1, verses 14 through 17, he gives us some insight on what that means. Great insight. I think most of us would say here that Jesus is the greatest example of love. As I said, the lost world would even say that if they had one word to describe Jesus, it would be love. So Jesus loves you. Uh, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jeremiah says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Love, love, love all throughout the scriptures. But then we find an insight in the book of John chapter one about what that really is all about. He says in verse 14, the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son of of the Father, full of grace and truth. He says, for the law has, was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So how would you define love, define love? It's truth and grace. It's not one or the other. It's not the truth, oh, I stand by the word of God, and that's it. And if you've broken the law, then no fellowship with you. If you've broken the law and you won't immediate repent, immediately repent, I'm not going to minister to you. I'm not going to work with you. In fact, I'm going to shun you. It's all about the truth. No, it's not. 
but it's not about grace, all about grace either. Okay, no matter what you've done, I'm sure God's gonna forgive you whether you've even asked forgiveness or not, and it's okay, everything's good. Don't worry about it, we're all good, everything's great, live any way you wanna. No, it's not just about truth and grace, it's a balance of the, tr- of the two. And Jesus gave us the example of this. It's a sincere, deep, brotherly love that expresses itself in the joy of the Lord, in kindness, in grace, in mercy. And whether we have the feelings of love for that person at all. Paul really summed this up. If I can just give two verses to sum it up, here it is. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition." or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interest of others. Put others' people first. Empathize with them. And, and that word empathize means, to, really in biblical sense, to pity them. Pity means I, I'm looking at things from your point of view. I'm seeing things from your light. I'm seeing what brought you to this point in life so I can better understand, not so I can excuse what you've done, but so I can better understand, better forgive you, and better help you. We love, therefore, when you're wronged. You love when you're persecuted, when you're slandered. Somebody says, well, no good deed goes unpunished. Do good anyway. Do good anyway. When you experience malice, deceit from others, you love them anyway. You share Christ with them. And that's the whole reason, I believe, the number one reason why we don't share Christ. We say, well, I just don't want to confront. No, you confront people with the gospel because they need it. You do it with truth, but you do it with grace. You do it with pity. You do it with empathy, I should say. Empathy with them trying to understand where they're coming from, why they're doubting the gospel, why they can't surrender to Christ. But you present the gospel to them. You see, you and I must put others first because we know, we know that our hurts and our heartaches and our trials and our tribulations and our sacrifices often come from the people that we love. And Peter is recognizing that. You say, well, pastor, how in the world do I do that? I mean, there's just no way. You don't know what I've been through. You know, it's sort of like the old saying, to live with the saints above, that would be glory. But to live with the saints on earth, well, that's another story. And we understand that. We understand it's just not that easy. When you've been left, when you've been divorced, when you feel like someone hurt themselves so badly that they took an early death, they experienced an early death. It's difficult when someone slanders. It's difficult when someone gossips. It's difficult. He says, well, how do you do this? Well, let's look then secondly and very quickly. And we've gone over this a little bit before in the other sermons, but let me just mention it again. We have the ground for it. We have the capability for doing what God has called us to do. God's never called us to do anything that he hasn't equipped us to do. It says in Romans 5, 5, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. It's been poured out to pour through. We can love other people because we have the Holy Spirit within us. And therefore, it says in verse 23, since you have been born again. How can you love everybody? why Why in the world would you possibly have the capability of doing that? Because you've been born again. 
because you've experienced the divine nature. Now, as I said before, we, we have this concept that born-again Christianity is a sect of Christianity. It's a type of Christianity. And therefore, if it's a, if it's a type, then there's a lot of different forms of Christianity. But the Bible tells us that unless he told Nic- Jesus told Nicodemus himself, unless you be born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. You can't be. And so as we look at this, he says, you've got to be born again. And belief in born-again Christianity, well, born-again Christianity is an oxymoron. You're either born again and you're a Christian, or you're not born again according to the Bible, and you're not. It's not that, gee, I'm, I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to live better. Jesus said this, truly I say to you, unless one be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. But, you, he, but he goes on to say, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's partaking of the divine nature. Here's a great verse for you to, to, to flag. For Second Peter, the second epistle of Peter, chapter one, verse four, by which you have, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He says, we, we are partaking in the divine nature because what we have is a supernatural experience. It's a point in time experience. And this is the, in, the, in the original language, in the verb, it's a point in time experience with lasting results. Born again, a point in time that you were born the first time physically, a point in time you were born spiritually as well. He says a point in time in which there's an experience that goes on for all of eternity, but you have expressed it in divine nature. The Holy Spirit of God has come to live inside your heart. Without the Holy Spirit, you can't get to heaven. He says we're sealed by him until the day that we're redeemed in heaven. You can't do that. And so it's not a matter of a sect of Christianity. It is Christianity. He says, you've been born again. You have the divine nature in you, and therefore you have capability. So, well, why do I have to be born again? Well, let's look. He says, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. He says, you've had the word of God that has been preached to you. It is unending. It is everlasting. But look at verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. He says it's just grass. He's quoting an Old Testament verse. And as he's quoting this, he's saying, look, your life is like grass. All of us like grass. We look good sometimes, sometimes not so good. You know, St. Augustine, let's face it, you may have bahia grass in your, in your lawn and you love it because you don't have to cut it, but maybe once every week or two. And it looks fine. But boy, that thick St. Augustine, it just looks so good. If you're living where I grew up in Georgia, you had fescue and you had Bermuda. And if you planted the Bermuda grass in sod, it looks so much better than the fescue. And the fescue would just die out quicker as well. But he says it's all grass. It doesn't matter what type of grass it is. 
it's going to fade and it's going to die. And unless it's constantly nourished, it's going to die young. It's going to die. He says, we're just all grass. So he compares flesh. That which is the flesh is just flesh. And Jesus even said, if I can come back to this, and John, he said this, truly I say to you, unless you be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. We're just flesh. We're, we're just the physical. Now, you can have a pretty flesh. You can have a very healthy flesh. You can have a very spiritual flesh in the sense that you are religious and that you read the Bible and you go to church sometimes and all these religious things, maybe even give to the church, serve somewhere uh, with the homeless, but it's just all flesh. You are just flesh. You're just better flesh than someone else, but it's just still all of the physical. He says, that's a category. That's flesh. That's the physical. That'll never change. He says, something has to happen to you that is supernatural. That's of something else, which is born of the Holy Spirit of God. When the Holy Spirit of God comes into you, you are born again by the Spirit of God, born from above, and you, are, you partake in the divine nature of God. And so here we find that God is saying that you must be born again. You say, well, you know, my flesh is pretty good. I'm not that bad. You know, I, uh, one of my sons uh, took a trip over to a Nepal, a mission trip years ago, and he climbed Kathmandu. Now, I've never been there, but it's a very high summit. And some of you are not familiar with that, but near there is Mount Everest. And so we'll just say that uh, we were both in the mountains and uh, in fact, there's a place in North Carolina called Ridgecrest. It's a, it's a conference center. And I, I've, run, I've ran a, uh, a uh, 3.1 mile, was that, 5K there one time. And the hill is like, a hundred, it's over 100 feet high. I mean, you just, that first hill you climb, your back hurts, the back of your legs hurt. You wonder if you can ever finish the race after the first couple of hundred yards. Suppose someone is up on that hill and it's a high hill. And I'm down at the bottom, and they look at me and say, you know, I'm so much better off than you. I'm so much higher than you. I can't believe you're, you're down there so, so low, 100 feet below me. But the person on Mount Everest at the top looks down at someone in that kind of situation. And he sees someone maybe on a hill, 100 feet, and another person, and you have to get some pretty powerful binoculars to do this, 100 feet below. To him, it's the same distance. There's so it's a microscopic difference. Now, you may be saying to yourself, Pastor, I'm a lot better person than you. And it's not like the pot calling the kettle black, which is kind of the way it is. But when God looks up from heaven, we're pretty much in the same spot. And it's just all flesh. And so he says, that which is born of the Spirit, is, so you have the capability of loving. The Holy Spirit is, is coming to your heart and you now have the capability of loving others. But many of you are believers. In fact, most of the people watching probably this morning are believers. And you say, well, I still struggle with that. So what do I need to do? And the last point here I wanna look at this morning, we find that not only are we born again, but also we find that in this common ground that we have with other people, 
there's also a growth in it. We have the capability of being a believer, a capability rather, of loving other believers and of loving other people. But what about the growth of it? You know, here's the thing. When a baby is first born, and that's really the, the illustration that Jesus gives, you're born again, you're a baby. You're just a small baby. That baby has certain talents, certain abilities. You know, eventually they'll probably be able to, to talk and walk. Eventually they're going to show talents maybe in mathematics or sports or music somewhere. Maybe a good salesperson, good managing skills. They're going to show the skills of life, and it's going to become pretty apparent to the parents as they grow, that child grows up. But they're not capable of doing it right then. They've got to grow to it. And the Bible tells us that there's different stages of growth. Again, in 1 John, it, be, it talks about uh, being fathers. He says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the Father. We find in the scripture that there's different stages of spiritual growth. You're a baby, then you're a child, then you go through ad spiritual adolescence, then a spiritual adulthood, and even in adulthood, you have the trials of life, but as an adult, you, you are gonna be able to handle the problems of life. The problem is we, we don't get out of the, the children's stage sometimes. Sometimes we, now I'm not saying even adults throw a tantrum every once in a while, but I mean, really, you know, you're, you're there, you feel like God's abandoned you, you had a bad night, you complain, you pray out, you, you cry out to God, it's a bad time for you, but the, then the next day you say, God, you know, I, I was really out of line. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I'm talking about really an action that tells that you can't take the trial that maybe you give up on God, give up on church. You're discouraged. You're depressed. How does that happen? We're not mature enough. Now, why do we need to grow? Well, for example, a newborn baby, a baby period, a toddler, very vulnerable, very, very vulnerable and really naive. Do you want to be naive? Do you want to be vulnerable to false doctrine and false beliefs? I heard about a story about a, a, a man that was asked by his child, said, Daddy, uh, why does the, the sun go over that hill and just disappear and it gets dark at night? And then when it comes up, <clears throat> when I see it over here on the other side, morning comes up. What happens to the sun? And he said, well, uh, son, the, actually the sun sets over around Phoenix. You know, it's hot there, you know, desert. He said, it just sets there. And he says, well, well, then what happens in the morning? He said, well, a bunch of people put it on a big truck and they drive it all the way over here to Georgia and they, they put it up and there, there it comes up. And a little boy goes to bed, tells his mom, says, you know, I hope I'm as smart as daddy when I grow up. You know, and you think, well, that makes no, you know, that, where does that really come into my life? We're just naive. We believe things and every argument, all the arguments of, of false philosophy, and the thoughts of men, you know, you can buy into them because they have arguments. Otherwise, nobody would believe them. But we're vulnerable. We're, we're naive. A child is selfish. Mine, 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 mine. This is mine. All they can think about is what's good for them. It's a rare child, even an elementary school child, that would really think of other people first. Do you want to live that way? Do you want to live in relationships with your husband, with your wife, with your children, in which you're just as much a child 
as your children growing up? Do you want to live that way where you're giving up all the time on God, where you're, you're not persevering with your prayers? Do you want, no, you don't want to live that way. No, you want to be mature. You want to be able to take the trials of life. You want to be victorious and endure and love people even when they don't love you. You want to be that kind of person. Then in order to be that kind of person, you've got to grow up. You've got to grow into the capabilities which you already have. And how do we do that? How do we do it? Well, we've already said trials and adversity. That's chapter one, verses six through seven. Here we find that's the external, the external things of life that are making you more mature because they're rubbing against you in life. And you're seeing yourself as God sees you. And because of the trial in life, you're, you're down. And when you're down, you look up and say, God, what do I do? And life changes come through those experiences. But there's something we can do to, to avoid a lot of that. And that is allow the word of God to change us as well. It says, first of all, the word of God, you can't be saved without it. It's already said that. But he says it's imperishable, but it's imperishable rather through the living and abiding word of God. That's how you get saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so you and I receive Christ because we have received the word of God into our heart, the truth of the gospel within our heart. And unless we do that, we cannot be saved. But then after we're saved, we continue to be saved. You see, it's, it's a one-time action, born again, with a continual experience after that. Continual effects. Because the Bible says that we've been saved in the past. We've been saved from the penalty of our sin the very moment we receive Christ. We're living this life in the now. And according to chapter 1, verse 2 of this uh, passage, we're being sanctified. We're being saved from the power of sin in our life. And then there's glorification in heaven where we'll be saved from the presence of sin in our life. Here we find an eternal seed of the past, the present, and the future of the word of God. The Bible says it cuts. Hebrews tells us in chapter four. The word of God, it just cuts into the soul. It's a double-edged sword. It heals us, but also cuts us and makes us realize about what? The malice, the deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander that's in our heart. It changes us. It molds us into something brand new. So how do you change? By internal, internally changing. How do you do that? You get the word of God in your heart, the preaching of God's word, the teaching of God's word, the reading of God's word, the studying of God's word, the memorization but really through the application. After doing all that, you have to apply it to your life. And when God in a supernatural way applies it to your heart and my life, my heart as well, then that change and maturity takes place in our life. Now the trials will still come, but I believe that less trial comes when you allow God to change you on the inside. He's gonna change you. He's gonna conform you to more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. Why? So you can love him, have a loving relationship with him and a loving relationship with other people. That's the why. So he's gonna change us, either internally or externally. But then I want you to notice the third thing here, and that is we're changed by others as well. It says the word of God, verse 25, remains forever. This word is the good news that was preached to you. Verse two, like newborn 
babies desire, long for the pure milk or spiritual milk that by it you may grow up unto salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now let me just come back to the word of God just for a moment before I sum this up. We're changed by the word of God. As newborn babies, we desire this pure milk. And milk, sometimes in the Bible, is just the elementary stuff. You know, you can see places in the Bible where it's contrasted the milk of God's word and the meat of God's word. This is just spiritual food. It's the milk, the meat, everything. You grow up through the word of God. And because of that, your relationships with others begin to change. And others, therefore, iron sharpens iron. Others around you in your small group, others around you in your community of believers help change you as well. You're inspired by them. Or maybe they confront you with something that's going on in your life that is not good for you. And they do it with grace as well as truth. Ecclesiastes says again, if two lie together, they keep warm. And how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three-four cord is not quickly broken. We need people around us to grow for fellowship, to serve, and for a blessing, a blessing to our own heart. And when we reach out and we're set aside for the holiness of God, to set aside to do as it were, the Bible says in verses, verse 17 of this chapter, the deeds, it not only changes somebody else, but it changes us as well. And as we exercise that, the love of God grows toward other people. I recall a story that Jim Simula of Brooklyn Tabernacle Church tells in one of his books. I've had the privilege of visiting that church a few years ago and going to their Tuesday night prayer meeting. They decided years ago that the Tuesday night prayer meeting was going to be the barometer of the success and failure of their church. And you go there and there's a two-hour meeting and there's a lot of music. There's a little bit of preaching as well. A lot of praying that goes on, a lot of praying. And one particular Tuesday night, <clears throat> excuse me, Jim Simmel, the pastor, had preached. He had a long day, two-hour prayer meeting. He was just ready to, I mean, you can only do so much. I don't care who you are, right? You, you've got so much energy. And so he was kind of milling around the altar, and a lot of people were coming up and continuing to talk to him. And finally, one guy came forward, came toward him, and it was a homeless man. And in Brooklyn, I don't know how Brooklyn is today, but in Brooklyn back then, there were homeless everywhere, Drugs had decimated the community, particularly cocaine, and they were continually ministering to drug addicts and to the homeless. This man came up to him, obviously homeless. They, he could smell him from a long way away. He came up to him, and Jim Simla said, I've reached in my back pocket for my wallet. And he says, I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to give you some money to help you out. Being sincere as he can be in his tiredness, but he said he didn't want to talk to that man, that young man. He just, he'd had it for the day. He'd, he'd been strained, his, his muscles, you might say, spiritual muscles to the nth degree. But the young man looked at him and he said, no, I don't want your money. I mean, he needed the money. Yeah, I don't want your money. I want to talk to you about this Jesus that you were talking about tonight. And Jim Simula said, and I paraphrase it, but he said, at that moment, God convicted my heart. And God overwhelmed me with a love for this young man. And I, I wrapped my arms around him and I hugged him. 
And he says, that stench, and I've ministered to homeless people before, it can get pretty, pretty bad. He said, the stench that turned me away so, so often, and just I prayed that God would somehow help me to, to get through the smell. He said, it was like a sweet, suddenly like a sweet aroma. He said, I cried, and he cried. And I was brokenhearted that I wasn't reaching out to this guy, that I was so tired that I was unwilling to maybe have that strenuous agape love for him. It changed my heart. It changed my life. He was able to lead that young man to the Lord and eventually began to minister in that church. And as far as I know, he's still there today. Him reaching out, changing, using God to change that man, or rather God using him to change that man's life, changed him as well. You see, God has called us to wholeness, called us back to his original design to be with him, to have a relationship with him. But it's vital that we have a relationship with others as well. And we love them with that as much as unconditional love, godly kind of love as we possibly can. And that brotherly love, how can we do that? We, we strain it. We, we move forward. We earnestly, diligently, purposely reach out to others as we reach long for the word of God and as we call upon the name of God to help us apply these principles to our life. You see, the Bible tells us that love really began with God. You look at Jesus. He was the perfect example. He reached out to us as he reached down. He died on the cross for people that rejected him, that beguiled him, that were deceitful with him, that slandered him. He died for them. He died for us. He died for you. And the only way that you can fulfill your calling in life to love him, to love others, is through Jesus Christ. Not just one of the ways to heaven, not just a born-again experience as good as any. No, a supernatural experience that can happen to your life that you can partake in the divine nature of God. It's called being born again. And if you've never been born again, I want to give you that opportunity to pray with me right now. As we bow our heads in the quietness of this moment, I just want to ask you, does Jesus live in your heart? Have you truly been born again? If not, would you pray this prayer with me? Would you pray it right there in your home? And you can repeat the words after me if you'd like. Lord God, thank you for loving me. Thank you, Lord, for going to the cross and dying for my sins. I open up my heart. I ask you to come in. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins and God, I pray that you would come into my life and change it. I want to be born again, born from above. I want to partake in your life, in Christ's name. And God, then I pray for every Christian here that's listening, that's watching, that are watching the future. God, I pray that we can all look at our life and say, God, where am I right now? What do I need to do? God, what do I need to do to call myself to you? God, you've given me the capability of loving others, the capability of being set apart for you. I pray that I can grow through your word. I pray that I can grow through adversities in life. And I can pray, pray I can grow through the fellowship of others 
the way you have called me to do so. And I dedicate myself to that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as you pray that prayer to receive Jesus in your heart, I just want to ask you to um, just open up our website and go to the welcome card that's Did you notice on your screen, the address there on your screen? Go to that, and there's a place there that you can indicate that you pray to receive Christ. And nearly every week, when we have live church, uh, we can say every week someone has prayed to receive Christ, virtually every week, and most of the time, many people. And so we're going to ask you to indicate that as well so I can know it, so I can pray for you, and maybe we can send you some literature in the mail that's going to help you grow in your Christian experience Uh, with him. And so we're going to ask you to do that. And so as we close this service and before we turn over the worship team, I'd like to say that uh, again, thank you for uh, tuning in to us. And hopefully in the next few weeks, we're going to have some sort of live service and I'll be getting back to you and sending you an email and posting something on Facebook this week that's going to bring you up to date on where we are with this virus and where we are uh, with our worship experiences and our church as well. Okay, God bless. Let's worship together. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.